0: And this court will be adjourned until the jury's verdict is
1: reached. Kevin Vickers is known the world over as Canada's Sergeant-at-Arms, who on October 22, 2014, along with other officers, was responsible for bringing to an end a shooting spree on Parliament Hill. The position of Sergeant-at-Arms is steeped in history, and while notionally the holder of the office is responsible for maintaining the grounds and security of the parliamentary precinct, In the modern era, the role is, or at least was, thought of as more ceremonial and administrative in nature. Kevin changed all of that. But before the notoriety, the accolades, the star of courage, the honorary degrees, and the appointment as Canada's ambassador to Ireland, Kevin Vickers was a police officer. I reached Kevin at his home in rural New Brunswick last week and we had a wide-ranging conversation covering his time at depot, right up until his time in Parliament Hill. In this episode, we cover Kevin's career as a police officer, and next week, we'll explore his time providing security to parliamentarians. It's a foggy March morning here in Vancouver. This is Episode 5, Part 1, with Sergeant at Arms, Kevin Vickers. I'm Dan Coles, and this is Under Reserve. Kevin, good morning, and welcome to the show.
0: Good morning, Dan, and thank you for your invitation.
1: Ha. Uh, it's an interesting morning to be speaking with you, and I should say it's morning in Vancouver, but it's uh, early afternoon in New Brunswick. Tanks are rolling into Ukraine, as I understand it.
0: Dan, listen, we have a lovely, bright, sunshine day here, but, uh, yeah, our hearts are with our fellow Canadians belonging to the Ukrainian diaspora, for sure. Uh, you know, I think Canada received literally hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians over the years. And, uh, they certainly account for a large part of our population in Western Canada.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, as we were discussing offline a moment ago, when, when I first reached out to you, we had an occupation in Ottawa. And now we're speaking a couple weeks later and we've got, uh, what looks like it might be an occupation in Ukraine.
0: Well, it's certainly uh, troublesome for everyone and, uh, you know, something the world doesn't need, especially right now at this time. But you know, Putin—he's uh, he's marched to his own drummer, that's for sure.
1: Well, uh, we'll, we'll save uh, international geopolitics from another podcast. What I wanted to ask you about this morning, first and foremost, is—you uh, know—you were a police officer for a long time. Um, how'd you find yourself in a mountie outfit? Or let me—or let me rephrase that: Why'd you decide to put on a mountie outfit?
0: Yeah, and the story for me, listen, I, as a young boy growing up, I had an uncle, uh, Uncle Benny, and uh, he was a police officer in a little community here in New Brunswick called Black's Harbor, and he was a, a previous uh, veteran of the, of the forces, but uh, he was a hometown policeman in this little community, Black's Harbor, and so whenever he came up to visit us here in Mount Rush, New Brunswick, I was always enthralled to meet him as a little boy, but I was walking to school one day, grade two, and uh, as I walked to school, I'd walk right by the courthouse in Newcastle, and um, one day uh, at noon hour, returning back to school, I walked uh, in front of the courthouse, and three members of the Royal Canadian Mount Police uh, were just coming out of Queen's Bench Court dressed in the Red Surge, and that was it. I knew then and there, as a young fellow, that that's what I was going to do, and that's what I wanted to be. and sure enough, I got to live that dream.
1: So when when in history did that dream start for you? When did you apply or, or ship off to Depot?
0: Yeah, I went to St. Avex uh, down in Anikonish, Nova Scotia for a short period of time, and then uh, I decided that I was going to apply for the force. And uh, as soon as I turned 19, um, it was just a couple of months later, a few months later that I uh, got a phone call and over to Franklin with my mom and dad, and sworn in, and uh, March 2nd, 1976, uh, arrived in uh, wonderful downtown Regina, Saskatchewan.
1: And I'm guessing that depot, uh, and Regina for that matter, in 1976 is a very different place than it is now.
0: Oh, for sure. Uh, <laughs> and it was uh, One of the things unique about it was uh, I was to be in what was called the first official co troop. Up at that time, it was always either 32 guys or 32 gals that uh, made up uh, the troops in Regina, but we were the first uh, to be the first official uh, co-ed troop, 16 and and 16, so that was a bit of a novelty. Mm. And then I think myself, and there was one other girl uh, from uh, Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, and we were the only two in the troop that... Uh, didn't have university degrees, so even back then, uh, you know, the force was moving towards, uh, you know, recruits and, and people with a little more uh, life experience, life competencies, and, and education. Even back then, was starting to, to take hold. But the uh, but the uh, the training itself, Dan, I believe, uh, you know, much different than it is today uh certainly more uh, geared towards the physical side of, of training, the physical you know, the self defense, uh all the physical uh exercises of, including uh swimming and uh drill of course was a big part of training back back then and not so much on the academic side and you know community based policing and uh, uh solving you know problem solving uh, those were not uh, really uh, instituted or on the ground back then. It was just the, it was just the, you know, more traditional side of of, of training, uh, of police training.
1: And this would have been this would have been pre-charter. So I, I, I expect, uh, to the extent you were getting classroom training, it, it wasn't with the same emphasis on, uh, you know, search, seizure, detention police caution, right-to-counsel concepts that I expect Mounties learn about today?
0: Absolutely. You know, more rote learning, uh, you know, uh, you know, we very much did a lot of, you know, studying at nighttime, but it was all like, you know, learning the different sections of the criminal code and the, the tests and exams would be more based on that as well. You know, just rote learning versus, you know, anything as I say, as a problem-solving nature, things like that, that wasn't there at that, at that point in time. In
1: this era, was it understood that you would be sent to far-flung parts of the country against your will? Or did someone like yourself, who I know spent some time up north, you stick up your hand and say, you know, I'd like to go there?
0: Well, you know, a lot of uh, at that time there's a great many uh, RCMP people being hired. It was uh, that year the Olympics were at Montreal in Montreal in 1976, so a lot of uh, the recruits that were hired that time found themselves uh, doing security in, in in Montreal. But no, it was like uh, you know I think very much as it is today when you sign on. Yeah, uh, you can expect to be transferred uh, anywhere in, in Canada. Um, I was very, very interested, of course, in returning to the Maritimes, but uh, I ended up in Peterborough, Ontario. And again, when I even by the time I had graduated from Regina, I was still only 19 years of age. So I off off to uh, went off to Peterborough, a drug section in Peterborough, Ontario.
1: So I. You know, my understanding of, of policing in, in Ontario is that the RCMP have a pretty small footprint. Um, what, what was the RCMP doing in, in municipalities in Ontario in the in the late 70s, early 80s?
0: Yeah, you know, there's a great focus at that time. Uh, you know, it was the beginning of time where the threat of organized crime was really starting to, to take hold in Canada. So there's a great, great amount of interest in and even... Our Greg sections of the time, you know, my time I spent in Peterborough was mainly focused on uh, organized crime groups such as the Hell's Angels. They had a chapter in a little place called Port Hope, Ontario, just just south of Peterborough, and so a lot of the the concentration efforts. And then around the Hamilton area, southern Ontario as well, uh, traditionally there's been. a lot of organized crime, uh, a lot of uh, Italian di- diaspora there as well, uh, including uh, you know large uh, families that were connected to the mafia, both in Montreal and in New York. And uh, I did spend six months in, uh, in in one investigation on the organization of uh, the Ontario Hallers Association, uh, an organized crime group. Uh, was trying to organize all the Ontario truckers so that they could rig the the pricing contracts for independent truckers in Ontario. Oh, yeah. About six months there in in a small little town called Waterdown, just outside of Hamilton, but that's what the focus of of, of that would be. And then, to to a larger extent, as I say, we had the National Criminal Intelligence Section, NCIS was another big unit at the time, but mainly focused on organized crime groups, white-collar crime, those types of uh, you know uh, offenses that we were looking at, I believe very much to this day. You know, the RCMP's role in in Ontario is usually, uh, you know, mainly a federal role looking right. after right. Uh, things such as you know international drug trafficking uh, and organized crime.
1: And you, as, as a as a pretty green police officer, got to step into these, you know, from where I sit, pretty interesting units you didn't have to uh, sit on the side of a highway and, and rip tickets on general duty for a couple of years first day?
0: No, I, I was able to avoid that debt And, uh, you know, but again, after three years in Ontario, my first uh, year and a half was in Peterborough drug section and then down to Toronto drug section and then a little bit in uh, the organized crime work that I just told you about. But I always had a dream to go to... Uh, up north uh, and do uh, policing among our First Nations communities, and uh, luckily for me, at three-year service, I was uh, selected. In a way, I went up to a place called Fort Ray Northwest Territories, about uh, 100 kilometers north of Yellowknife.
1: And how did that? How did, how did the seed for that dream get planted from a you know a young man in New Brunswick who wants to go see the far north?
0: Well, you know, um, I did, growing up here, especially in our area, that we're surrounded by uh, a number of First Nations communities. So, you know, I always had contact with First Nations people, but it was just something um, I always always thought I would love to do. And sure enough, uh, I was lucky enough to uh, be selected, and away I went. Uh, I was smart enough, I guess, to go back to... Newcastle here in New Brunswick and marry my high school sweetheart before going but away we went um,
1: You managed to drag your new wife to a, a community 100 miles north of Yellowknife.
0: Dear Anne, she graduated from uh, Acadia University Yeah. Uh, one, one weekend, we were married the next weekend and the following weekend she found herself in Fort Ray uh, with uh, 1800 uh, Dog River Indians and 8 white people and I remember driving into the community, they didn't have running water, so uh, their toilets were basically a garbage bag in a bucket, which we used to call honey buckets, and when they were filled, they would simply tie the the garbage bag off and set them out in their front yards. And uh, I remember driving into town, and somebody opened up a window and threw one of these garbage bags, and Ann started crying. And... Literally, Dad, She didn't stop crying. I'd go to work in the morning; she'd be crying. I'd come home at night; she'd be crying. And uh, you know, it was it was biblical. <laughs> yeah.
1: Wow. Well, I I
0: uh... couldn't. You couldn't. I couldn't believe uh, our our female counterparts could, uh, could could cry so much. But anyway, she got a teaching job in September of that year, and uh, like I did, she fell in love. Uh, with with Fort Ray and the Dogrid people, and we ended up staying there. It's usually for a married po- uh, for a single uh, person was a one year posting, and uh, for married people it was a two year posting. And Anne and I spent almost four years there. There was a number of RCMP officers when I was there that literally quit the RCMP. It was it was a very rough uh, community. They had very little contact with white society up until just before the outbreak of the Second World War uh, when highways were actually pushed into uh, in, into Yellowknife so their physiology was was such that you know they had never had much experience with alcohol uh nor with white society so it was a you know a big social turmoil for that community and uh it, it was a very violent community. We, you know, there's a lot of violent crime there, as a result of the alcohol and and uh, the quick transgression. You know, jump from, you know, a a, a really nomadic society to a society that was uh, placed on a uh, you know a, a set location. So that was a really uh, experience. But during my time there, I think there was three RCMP officers that quit the RCMP. <laughs> they had enough. That was it. And so they'd, each year they would come out, would you mind staying one more year? Would you mind staying one more year? So that's how we ended up staying.
1: This, this sounds like incredibly challenging police work. With, with,
0: well, with, you know, it was challenging, but, uh, you, know, um, you know, I look back with nothing but fond memories, uh, Dan. you know, and, and there's lifetime lessons that I learned there that went on to benefit uh but you know my 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 career and just what the experience that I gained uh, working there you know I the story comes to mind where there are three other communities that we flew into I flew into once every two weeks either on by float plane in the summertime or on skis in the wintertime and I remember this one particular time um it was treaty days so uh, I had to fly into Snare Lake and uh According to Treaty 11, everybody on the ban list would get five dollars uh, uh, that were associated with Treaty 11. And So a deputy minister from Ottawa wanted to see a live treaty, so away I went uh, from Fort Ray into Illinois with my Red Surge and uh, took a briefcase into the Royal Bank and had that filled up with five dollar bills and picked up this deputy minister. and drove down to Back Bay and Yellowknife and off we went to Snare Lake and uh, arrived there and the community was there to to greet us and it was like a picnic table and set up and they all lined up and each person came forward. I'd give them the five dollars and they would uh, mark an X by their name on the on the band list and afterwards uh, Dan, we were invited into the community hall community center, a log building, and for a community feast, and after the feast, the the deputy minister was asked to speak uh, to to the community and told them how lucky they were to now be Canadians and to have all the wonderful things that Canada has to offer them, you know, education and health care and all the great things that that, uh, being Canadian uh, brings uh, to their to their to their lives now. And back of the room, Dan, there was a, an elderly lady. Uh, her name was Monique Arrowmaker, and Monique was 91. And it was a July day. And it was very warm up there, but she, still she was wearing like a ski jacket, and she had a very long uh, skirt on, right down to the floor to her moccasins, which she had uh, covered in rubbers and she had a kerchief over her head and a a cane and she banged the cane like three times. Bang, bang, bang. And the room fell silent and she slowly moved up to the front of the room and she reached down into her bra and she pulled out a medallion and she said, "Uh, sir, thank you very much for your five dollars, but this medallion my father gave me, and as it turned out, When Treaty 11 was signed, each of the signatures were giving a medallion, so she told him this wonderful voice, "'My father gave me this medallion. My father told me that that treaty was a treaty of peace and friendship, that as long as the sun rises and the rivers flow, this land is our land.'" Again, thank you very much for your five dollars. You're welcome to come to our community. You're welcome for our food here today. Just, I was just a young bounty over the corner, but you know, just with the, uh, the validity in her voice, and you know, the oral history was so true that you know, I, I I realized then and there, you know, Canada's going to have a lot of issues, First Nations issues here in our country, um, based on what I learned that day. So those are like lifetime experiences that uh, I never, I'll never forget. You know,
1: was it was it on balance a, a positive relationship between the RCMP and, and the communities that you policed? I mean, I mean, given the context, you've just, you've set out for us. I oh, don't. Oh
0: yeah. No, they were, there were like, you know, the, the, the community up there, I think, the, you know, they, they depended on the RCMP. Great. You know, I, I, I even ended up delivering a young, uh, baby the back with a police truck, uh, one day and, uh, Rose Chocolate. Her her surname was Chocolate, Rose Chocolate. And, uh, anyways, I should say the police truck, but we just got her to the, to the Edzo Community Hospital. It was like a little hamlet uh, hospital. And, uh, you know, she bore uh, the kids. So I have a namesake up there uh, somewhere, Dan, uh, mm-hmm. Kevin Chocolate. <laughs> so so those are, you know, the closeness that you would have with them. But, Conversely, you know, there's times that, uh, you know, as they say, due to the social upheaval that that community went through, um, as they say, a number of RCMP members quit. And, you know, I I look at, you know, any downsides or down periods of time I had there, and I was left alone there. It was a four person RCMP detachment, and I was left there one summer for a month by myself. And, uh, and I just never stopped. Mm. Uh, the phone would never stop ringing. Uh, like a, you know, a load of alcohol would get into the community and I would just go and I'd be doing sexual assaults, uh, breaking up fights, uh, people like violent situations where I'd be taking guns off of people, taking knives off of people. And, uh, to I say I never would get any rest? And, uh, I remember uh, times, you know, you just get to bed and just get to sleep and the phone would ring again. And uh, I'd literally take the police truck and back it up to the to the, to the house. And I'd go in and rest everybody. Right. <laughs> I mean, totally crazy, but I would arrest everybody because I knew if anyone stayed, I'd be getting called again, you know? Yeah. And uh, But anyway, this went on for days and... Uh, one morning I woke up and uh, Anne said to me, she said, Kevin, are you okay? And I said, why? She said, well, you went to bed last night. You were crying. And um, so those are, you know those, you know, those times were, you know, though many good times, I, I, I look back and uh, there, there were, there were certainly times there that were quite desperate and, and uh, quite dysfunctional, I guess you would say.
1: When did your time up north come to an end?
0: Um, from Fort Ray, I went into Yellowknife and I did three years of major crimes, and that's where I really started getting into uh, uh, homicide investigations. Uh, but uh, right after my three years in Yellowknife, I then became a, a detached commander in a place called Fort Resolution, which is just north of the Alberta uh, NWT border. And I, I ran a detachment there for a couple of years. And then um, away I, I went, my children, then and Andrew. Was born and Laura was born, both were born up north, and uh, they were getting of school age or close to school age time, so uh, we decided to go south and we ended up in Calgary, Alberta.
1: And did you have a lot of experience um, in homicide work throughout your career, major crimes?
0: I did, uh, you know, I, I I went to Calgary and I did about three years more uh, drug section drug work, international uh, drug work, and then uh, went back over to uh, back over to homicide and my last, uh, I guess, five years in Calgary um, was just nothing but homicide investigation. You know, you'd be called a different. Uh, Parts of southern Alberta, uh, wherever uh, homicide had occurred, and you'd you know you'd stay there until uh, the case was resolved. Um, so no, I and then up north as well. Those three years and three years in uh, Yellowknife, I think it's something like 33 different cases I was involved in up there as well. And there I'd be flying all over the Northwest Territories, flying into different uh, communities where homicides had occurred. Yeah
1: so what was your role on 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 most of these investigations we were, were you the were
0: well, you... usually uh, when we arrive we would help the forensic uh, the forensic uh ident member we call them identification uh, services members do the crime scene and then uh you know we would uh normally be called upon to do the interrogation of you know the interview of witnesses and the interrogation of the uh, of the suspect yeah
1: so, interrogating suspects. What can you tell us about that? What, what were the, uh, the tricks of the trade of Kevin Vickers well, in the eighties? You
0: know, you look back at life, and you, you, know, there's things you you, know, you, you look at that you know perhaps you were born to do, or should this is, this is where you should be in life. And I, you know, was passionate about doing homicide uh, investigations and, and doing, you know, interviewing, uh, interrogating uh, suspects of of sudden death. But, um, you know, I, I, I give so much credit to my dad. You know, as a young boy, he, he taught us the importance of values, you know, integrity. And one of the things he always chirped into us as a family is always respect the dignity of people. And um, so every time I go into a, an interrogation room or an interview room to interview a, a suspect of homicide, I always thought of my dad. And, you know you don't respect the behavior but you respect that person's dignity and uh it certainly it certainly served me well i i think in, during my career i've obtained 17 confessions from from men who who have killed people but it's uh it it you know again it's it's, it's showing respect to them to their dignity not, not not to their behaviors or 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 to what has happened but i think Going in with that sense of, of respecting a person's dignity uh, served me very well in, in unlocking uh, unlocking, uh, unlocking confessions. I, you know, One comes to mind, when I got about seven or eight uh, confessions in uh, Yellowknife or out of Yellowknife, um, by that time we were video recording statements and people could watch me do the interrogation. Uh, I remember this one uh, crime. It was, it was a drug-related crime, but anyway, it was a young fellow by the name of Michael who killed this person. But I interviewed him for about two and a half hours, and it, was, it really wasn't going anywhere. And I asked Michael to tell me about his youth. And uh, anyways, he teared up and welled up, and talked to me about being sexually assaulted as a young boy. And, uh, Get that off the table, and sure enough, he admitted to the homicide uh, in, in question. And I came into the in- interview room, and there was you know a number of uniform officers there, and they were wanting to high-five, you know, and using very pejorative terms. You know, you got the bag, you got the scum bag, you got. Thinking it, you know, I remember saying, "Guys, you know, we're better than this," and. Uh, the only reason that I was able to get that confession was, again, respecting his dignity. And, and that, as I say, you know, an interesting, interesting follow up on that one, Dan, is one other thing I always did uh, when they usually, because it was homicide, they never were released. Uh, so uh, I'd always stop in like once a month during their pretrial detention and just say hello and. Is there a day I can get you or talk to them? And uh, anyways, this young man, uh, his stepfather was a very wealthy man from Hamilton, Ontario, and he hired this very reputable defense lawyer out of Winnipeg who flew up to Illinois to to defend him. His name was Hirsch Walsh. And uh, so anyways, when it came time for the boy dire, there's a trial within a trial to... At the uh, in, that's, that's statement, the statement uh, admitted, I've never been grilled by a defense lawyer anything like I was grilled that day. Like he went up one side of me, down the other. You know, you would say anything to get my client to, to, uh, and on and on and on. And, uh, you know, he's getting louder and louder. <laughs> and uh, Michael McHughes uh, is sitting there, of course, in front of the judge. He looks up at him, and in a loud voice, he says to to his defense lawyer, you leave Kevin alone. Wow. And uh, he he looks at his client, he looks at the judge, and uh, so anyways, he looks at the crown, they ask for an adjournment, and uh, so the crown and and Hirsch-Walsh, they go outside and do what crowns and defense lawyers do, and... They uh, settled on, I think it was a ma- it was a manslaughter or second degree murder, whatever it was, with uh, the with, uh, with with the sentence, and, and that was it. But it just came back to me again, though, like you know, the, you know, uh, first of all, I may not have forgotten the statement without treating the person with respect and dignity, and then that little bit of checking in on somebody every once in a while who happened to take a, a path in life that. Not to be taken, or uh, was set up. Uh, that many of us, because of you know our upbringing, raised in good families, having good parents, uh, mm-hmm. we don't find ourselves in that circumstance.
1: So I'm picturing your approach to interrogation more of the good cop than the bad cop.
0: Very much so. I never, I, I never saw any sense of, uh, as you as you call it, being. Being a thing, I always went. You know, especially when I was, uh, you know, rel- relatively sure of who I was going to go. And I, I kind of caught on very early on. If you walk in that interview door, and there's a doubt in your mind whether the person did or didn't do it, uh, that can be read. Right. That person, you know, he has done it, uh, just like any other species of animal. In, in the world is going to do whatever it can to avoid danger of you know of being caught. And uh, so when I walked in that door of an interview room, I always you know just spent time prior to entering that interview door saying to myself, you know, I'm going to get this. I'm going to do this. And just being positive about it. And I would uh, at the time. Um, and again, with, with uh, precedence of of years now, I'm not sure it would be a minute. But I'd always have a, a statement: is I'm not here today to ask you, Michael, whether you did or you didn't do it, Michael. What I want to know is why you did it. Huh? And I, that was and I, that was my pitch, and that was that was my line. And I knew if there was any quiver in my voice or any doubt in my face. That that you know, your 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 chances or odds of getting that confession uh very But that was you know, that was always my pitch. Like, look at Michael, I'm not here as to ascertain whether you did or you didn't do it. Michael, what I wanna know is why you did it.
1: Does it does that stay with you? You Kevin, I mean, um I've never been in the room with anyone who's who's killed anyone. Sounds like 17 people have told you they've killed someone is, you know, I don't know if haunting used the right word, but y- you reflect back on that. That's a lot of time to spend with, with murderers.
0: There was like, you know, a lot of them, a lot of them were, uh, you know, really, uh, spending, spending, you know, time getting over that hurdle and, and getting the person, uh, to, uh, confess to, you know, probably the most horrendous crime a human being can make. Others, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't want to leave anybody with the impression that I'm some great master uh, interrogator. You know, I, I certainly had my my degree of success, but you know, you run into some people that, uh, and, uh, and more than a number of them as well, are very simplistic. Uh, you know, that would. Give you offhanded comments as to why they did it, and right. like right off, right off the bat. So, did
1: it you ever to... lose any confessions on a on a voluntariness voir dire?
0: No, I. there is one, and you you, you mentioned uh, the charter, but it, I, it, it again, the guy was convicted uh, not of uh, it, it was, I, I, I believe it was assault, bodily harm is what we what we do. But anyways, it was an Aboriginal guy that had stabbed his wife. Um, she was medevaced from Yellowknife to Edmonton and when I arrived in the scene he was in custody, had been arrested and the charter had just came in. Uh the charter the charter just came in, so this would be nineteen eighty two. And uh, the first thing he said to me is, I wanna I wanna talk my lawyer, I wanna call my lawyer. And I think we, he did. We gave him an opportunity to call his lawyer and I believe and uh, again, this is coming to me, I think his lawyer was in court in Illinois. It wasn't available to take his phone call. So I came back into the room, and he said my lawyer wasn't available. So I said to him, uh, his wife was in critical condition in Edmonton. She could die. If he wanted to write a letter to her to say whatever he wanted to say to her, I'd uh, make sure that she got that letter uh, hopefully before she dies or passes. And, of course, he writes out a complete confession, plus where he hid a, the knife behind a washer in the house. <laughs> so the way we went, by this time, at Depth of Crime think we got a search warrant. We went back and got uh, and retrieved the knife. But... Uh, Incredible. That was, uh, I was thoroughly berated by, by the justice. There was a justice who was quite uh, notorious for this. He had Robillard, I believe his name was. He came up from Quebec. He'd be one of these traveling circuit court judges. Yep. And uh, needless to say that he was not impressed with uh, my antics. of.
1: You might have suspected this. it was a ruse, Kevin you know g- g- <laughs> give the accused a letter that uh you purport to take to his dying wife and see what he writes
0: exactly so anyway that was that was uh needless to say that wasn't a minute but again huh. uh, i forget what the actual uh, the more serious charge was but he pled guilty to uh a, a lesser you know assault causing bodily harm whatever the whatever the charge was he, uh, she survived she didn't die
1: you you also um I mean, your career seems to have moved back and forth between homicide and drug work. I know you spent some time in and around investigation in Texas. Can you tell us something about that?
0: Yeah, no. uh, One of the other things that I uh, really enjoyed in life and uh, had a a fair degree of success was was developing uh, confidential sources, human sources, and uh, this particular source was not a source that I recruited, but... uh, uh, he belonged to a criminal group out of Montreal known as the West End Gang that had set up different operations all across Canada uh, for the distribution of uh, cannabis and cocaine at the time. And that group in Montreal uh, was affiliated with a organized group out of El Paso, Texas. They're, they're known as the Dudley family. And uh, this Particular individual uh, worked within that group, and anyways, we were successful in recruiting him and not only this time it was very novel he became what was called a civilian agent where we literally signed a contract with him at the time this would be nineteen ninety one uh, for seventy five thousand wow. dollars he he would go to work every day with this group, and of course report back to us um and then when the Drug Enforcement Administration found out who we were working on in the States, his Dudley family, they were all interested up. They came up and they offered him $125,000 American. So, you know, over $200,000 Canadian dollars would be his salary. But uh, I worked with him and a, another drug investigator uh name of Bobby Aiken. Bobby's out in Vancouver Island, retired now, but he was a legendary <laughs> drug guy. But anyway, um and I, I remember then we had to sign Bobby and I had to sign this top secret thing out of Ottawa uh, for something that you could buy at Shoppers Drug Mart now for about twelve bucks and it was a a little electronic tape recorder. In nineteen ninety one they were just coming on the scene, you know, but uh uh, and, you know, you couldn't buy them commercially, but the RCMP and this guy, uh, the civilian agent, uh, he would wear that uh, each day and every night. I would meet him in El Paso and, uh, with Bobby, or, and uh, we would make our notes based on what he did that day. And, uh, I, I'm, I'm smiling to myself now. This, this. I weighed about 300 pounds, and every night he wanted a pizza. And all I, all I can remember now was taking his two index fingers and putting his mouth down by the table and scooping the pizza into his mouth as we, as we were making up his notes for, for court. Uh, long story short, uh, they built a little uh, airstrip uh, down by Christina Lake in the Kootenays. It, it took them six months to build this. Uh, Air strip where they were going to fly uh, cocaine directly from El Paso uh, into uh, Christina Lake uh, in the Kootenays in British Columbia, and uh, it took them six months to build it, this airstrip. And then just at that time, there's a provincial park there, and a little girl got lost, and uh, the search and rescue people were up uh, look, looking for this young lost girl and came across this uh hey, this we can use this as an airstrip. So that uh thwarted the bad guys, they they got spooked from that and then they decided they were gonna try to truck it in and uh so uh, we flew down and uh, they were all meeting up in Spokane, Washington. And uh I think the hotel's name was Red Lion, if my memory serves me correct and uh uh they showed up there, and that's where the arrest took. But we, they had bank accounts, Swiss bank accounts. Uh, we seized nine airplane in El Paso, Texas. Um, tons of money, and, uh, and a lot of these uh, guys here in Canada, they got 15, 20 year sentences. And in, in the states, they had those, I believe it's called those RICO statutes. You know, where they got like two and three lifetime sentences. So it was an interesting time for sure
1: and other are, are, are wires and intercepts and what we think of as, as part six stuff at play in the oh, early 90s yeah, no, we, yeah we
0: had we had part six and that would be, would be another big part of uh, what I had uh, been involved in that investigation we would be doing up these affidavits to to obtain a obtain uh, a, the part six uh, authorizations we used to laugh the, the organized group out of Montreal had very strong French accents, and then of course the, the lads in El Paso spoke with very heavy Texan accents. So, <laughs> and then on the phone, of course, they would be trying to speak in somewhat code as to what they were doing, but they couldn't understand one another. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it <laughs> used to be <laughs> great, great laughter for us, but also frustration because they would, uh, they would. Uh, it would delay things at, at times, but uh, the Part 6 was up and running, and uh, so their their phone calls would be surreptitiously recorded. But, again, <laughs> with the French accents and the Texan accents, they had a hard time understanding one another.
1: How was how your French in the 90s?
0: Well, you know, it would have been uh, after, after my drug... Uh, Years there in Calgary, I went into homicide. And then I just realized my wife and I always wanted to get back east, um, but I knew that that wasn't going to happen unless I became bilingual. And I always, uh, by that time, was looking forward to having a more advanced career in the RCMP. And I knew that that was not going to, to happen. So in Calgary, I started going to the University of Calgary, taking French courses, and there was a little Lunch room there uh, at the University of Calgary where English students learning French could go take their lunch uh, or bring their lunches, but the rule was everybody speaks French. So I did that religiously whenever I worked, reported me the opportunity. That the University of Calgary was only about 15 minutes away from their CMP headquarters in Calgary, so I always took my, my lunch there and then took French lessons. And then I joined the French drama theater a little <laughs> every Saturday night in okay. downtown Calgary they had a French uh, theater society and uh, they had this game uh, in theater called Improvisation improvisation, and uh, it would be two teams playing once another against one another and they'd have a referee who would come up with a theme and then you'd have to go out and act out whatever the theme was and in Calgary in the day there would be about 600 people from Quebec who lived in Calgary, uh, who would attend that theater. So it was quite professional, and uh, when you're up there in front of somebody, you don't have a chance to think either you speak French or—so <laughs> that's, that's how I really really got going. And then uh, about a year after that, I was lucky enough to be selected for French-language training uh, in Edmonton, and then I went down a total of four months in Montreal. And uh, and uh, finished off. And I did very well in French language training. Uh, we have what's called different levels, but there's also if you do well enough, you get exempted from from further testing. And I I was it, managed to get over those hurdles, or I, I I had exemptions in comprehension and writing and and oral speaking French. So uh, I did very well, and then following that, I. Was promoted, or got my commission as an inspector in uh, in Ottawa, and then finally, just uh, a year or so later, it was the first time in 25 years, uh, finally got Anne back home to uh, her mom and dad here in New Brunswick.
1: Oh yeah. Your uh, your time working up CIs or, or dealing with agents, did you ever do undercover work yourself?
0: We did a lot of well, yeah the uh, the course that I was on or I would have taken it was right, right there in Vancouver, um, the drug undercover course, uh, half the course is divided into actual operators and the other half uh, were, invited, uh, were divided into what what's called cover team. And I was actual, had that coverage team training where you work with undercover operators in a you know, in a surreptitious manner, but you're not an active participant in the investigation. You're there more to obtain whatever evidence is collected by the undercover operator, and you're certainly there for his protection. So, you know, like a typical, you know, scenario in that drug course in Vancouver, uh, if you were downtown Vancouver uh, buying drugs, uh, you know, you'd uh, be collecting whatever drugs were purchased and you would be there to direct the informant as to or the undercover operator as to uh, who he used uh, to buy from or attempt to purchase from and secure whatever exhibits that uh, that he got but we took that Dan that training and then later on we perfected that uh, undercover training to a lot of uh, homicide investigations going back to your charter like you know if if uh, you know involved people are involved in, in uh, homicides or whatever and if if you have very little evidence and you, all you have is a hope of, of getting a confession from someone and he uh, or she retains the services of a lawyer that's pretty well it for your investigation so uh we had this scenario uh, that's you know been viewed highly and sometimes dimly by the courts it was called a Mr Big scenario where uh, we would approach the homicide suspect with an undercover operator, and uh, it, it could just be a simple thing. Uh, you know, would you happen to have a few hours on a Saturday to help me help move my apartment, uh, move me into my apartment, and then just gradually build up each scenario uh, with the suspect until trust level is there, and then you would introduce uh, Mr. Big of your organization, who would. Confront the suspect and um, or, or meet with the meet with the suspect and offer him a position in your criminal organization. But the condition was that he'd have to tell you anything like that could back to haunt him or haunt the haunt or endanger. And a lot of confessions were um, have been obtained that way. And as I say, the courts have are back and forth. I, I don't know where I've lost track of it now, but I know. Uh, that, that there were several uh, Queen's Bench decisions or Supreme Court decisions that frowned upon it, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I know there was other court uh, that held
1: that it was. You were involved in some of these Mr. Big scenarios personally.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Now I was uh, uh, again. I would be the coverman right? Looking after the undercover operator who'd be meeting with uh, meeting with the uh, meeting with the suspect. Um, I know, uh,
1: Kevin, there's a, it's probably, I don't know, maybe a decade old now, Supreme Court of Canada decision called HEART. And th- the facts there were a, a, f- a father confessing to police officers to murdering his daughters. And I think it was from Odeeston. It might have been Newfoundland or New Brunswick. But, you know, the court raised concerns, you know, probably coached in voluntariness concepts about, you know, as I, as I think you alluded to earlier, a lot of times you know murderers or or, or purported murderers are, are relatively simple people or have you know limited cognitive functions or addictions did did you ever were you ever concerned about Mr. Big confessions that people people No were,
0: and you know usually we'd have a like a whole back piece um, you know let's say someone was stabbed uh, uh, in the back uh, below the right shoulder blade uh, we would, as we got going in these investigations, we would uh, meet with the RCMP officers or city officers, whoever, that were at the crime scene and get them to ensure that no one else is told about exactly how the murder happened. And we would call that hold back evidence. So in the Mr. Big scenario, uh, you know, the question would be, well. How do you know I'm not? You're not just bullshitting me, right? Well, no, no, sir. I stabbed the guy, and I stabbed him in the back, right below the. the nobody knows that other than the two RCMP officers or city police officers, or whoever went to that crime scene, and and uh, you know whatever identification services or major crimes. So only very few people would know. So, and in my view, that's the whole purpose of the voideer. Was it's, is it's not you know. Threats, promises, inducements—it's the thing. The issue at play is the truthfulness of the statement, and so I was—I always thought—and <laughs> again, maybe, maybe these cases had. In fact, Dan, I, I do recall the case you're referring to—the Hart decision—but um, I always thought it was a—it was fair game.
1: When did uh, when did you get out? When did you retire from from then the RCMP? I, that is.
0: Yeah, the RCMP. I uh, went on, as I mentioned to you. As <coughs> excuse me. I went on uh, as an inspector. I came home here to New Brunswick, uh, and I was only here for a short while. And I uh, was promoted to the rank of chief superintendent back in Ottawa, and charge of contract policing. I was the officer in charge of contract policing. After contract policing, it'll You know the contracts uh, for the provinces and. 600-and-some-odd municipalities across Canada that had contracts uh, for RCMP services, plus looking after uh, all the operational policies of the RCMP, uh, a number of, number of uh, large staff that looked after all that stuff. And then uh, one morning I received a phone call asking me just out of nowhere from a company saying, would you be interested in becoming the director of security? At the House of Commons, and uh, I had a little over 29 years service, Dan, and uh, I enjoyed every day I went to work in the RCMP. I, I just loved my work, and I said, Kevin, you know, people hang on for that one last promotion or whatever, and uh, reality, it was also like it would, it would be a promotion for me. It would be pay at a higher level, and I'd also get my RCMP pension. So uh, you know, I said, Kevin, why don't you leave on a high note? And uh, I said, sure. I went down and I had my interview, and uh, it came to be. I, uh, I. Uh, what year is this? That would have been 2005. Yeah, that I that I left it. I, you know, I was. Not torn at all. Uh, not you know, a, a decision I never re- regretted. I I have nothing but uh, great respect and love for the the force, the the Royal of, of Police. But I had a great time and enjoyed it all. And, and uh, I, I you know I'm I'm happy that I made the decision that I did.
1: I'm going to ask you more about the common security in a minute. But you know, hearing you talk about you know a 29 year career that, that took you to Peterborough and Calgary and Vancouver and Northwest Territories, and doing a lot of important and interesting stuff. Did you get lucky? I mean, you know, some people say you got to be good to be lucky. Are young men and women?
0: You know, you know, I, I just think the biggest thing, you know, is to be mobile, and and to be willing. so many people get, you know, they they you know they'll they'll find themselves in a Kelowna, and they're you know their their spouse has a great job and a great salary, and they're very happy and contented to spend their service in Kelowna. And, um, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't uh, re, uh,
1: frown on that at
0: all if that's, you know, what people would like to do. But I was always up, uh, you know, to see what's over the next valley, next hill. And, uh, you know, I, I, from day one, I, I always kept myself mobile and becoming bilingual was another another I think important step to becoming for advancement and as well as uh, uh opportunities making opportunities for yourself so uh, you know any young RCMP officer today that you know I encourage you you know uh to be mobile and uh get that university degree if you don't have it and uh if you have the opportunity to learn a second language regardless of what language it is Uh, I'd certainly encourage people to, to do that as well.
1: For most people working in law enforcement, what Kevin saw and accomplished over three decades with the RCMP would be considered a very exciting and rewarding career, perhaps more than enough. It's extraordinary that for Kevin, his retirement with the RCMP wasn't the end of his life in public service, but rather just the end of the beginning. Be sure to tune in next week for part two, where Kevin and I explore the next chapter of his career, heading up the Parliamentary Security Service, before picking up the mace and acting as Canada's Sergeant-at-Arms. Until then, we're under reserve.